between Islam and Arabic has always been a strong one. It's hard to think of one without the other. But today, as in the golden age of Islam, Arabs are a minority in the Muslim world. The question of whether Arabs deserve special status has been and continues to be a very contested one and certainly something that other ethnic groups have not been willing to just roll over on. Today we're going to look at the movement of ethnic pride that challenged the dominance of Arabs within Muslim society. So please stay with us. Islam. And today we're continuing with our series of episodes about ethnicity in the Islamic Empire. Remember last time we talked about the really the rise and the solidification of the Arab identity and how it came to dominate. Well, today we're going to see the reaction to that. Now, before we go on, just a little administrative note. I want to thank all of you who have already checked out our Facebook page. If you haven't, please check it out. That's on Facebook under the Golden Age of Islam. Where else? And we'll be posting things on there that we don't get to include in these episodes. There's a lot of research that doesn't get included. So we've been posting some quotes that are very interesting that you haven't seen in other places, and some information about some inventions in the Islamic world. Was the first flying machine invented by a Muslim engineer? We also included a post recently on the history of coffee. As much as we associate it with Colombia and Central America, it actually originated in Yemen, and the word is an Arabic word. So please check that out. Leave your comments and questions on our Facebook page, The Golden Age of Islam. Now, back to talking about ethnicity in the Muslim Empire. For this episode, we are still a ways back from where we have been in recent episodes. We're continuing to look at the issue of ethnicity in the Islamic Empire. Last time we talked about the client status of non-Arab Muslims, the Mawali. We talked about the development of Arabness as a concept, specifically in the context of differentiating the Arabs from the new converts to Islam. Well, today we're going to talk about the other side of that debate, the movement of ethnic pride, which is known as the Shubiyah. On a practical level, the, quote, original Arabs, meaning the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula who were speaking Arabic before Islam arose, had become a minority in the Muslim world by the time of the Abbasid Caliphate, as they are today. And we have seen that after their initial rise to power, the mighty Abbasids would rely heavily on other nationalities to run their empire, specifically Persians. Now, of course, Turks would come to dominate the military, and thus real power, to a large extent, uh, tended to be theirs. But they kept the facade of Arab rulers, and the Turks, as we've seen, were not that much into the production of literature and philosophy and scholarship. But that aspect of society, that represented by the bureaucracy, the scholars, the record keepers, they were heavily drawn from Persian roots. And the Abbasids, despite their lineage to the Prophet, had their power base in a key strategic Persian region of Khorasan, which we've talked about, which is in northeastern Iran. And they brought a lot of Persian culture with them. Now, to a lesser extent, the Copts and the Greeks in Egypt and the former Byzantines in Syria also played a similar role. But it was already a criticism of the Abbasids by their early critics that they were enamored with Persian culture. 
Well, by the second century of Islam, as the Abbasid Empire was at its height and the golden age of Islam was truly golden, everybody was writing in Arabic no matter what their ethnic background was. So the question of whether the, quote, Arabs, and I'm using that in quotes to refer to those who specifically traced their lineage back to the Arabian Peninsula, those with Bedouin roots, because today the term has broadened. When we say Arab, we're primarily referring to someone whose main language is Arabic. This is how Egyptians and Moroccans fall into this category. But at the time of the Abbasid Empire, uh, what's at stake here is those who have their lineage going back to the original Bedouin. Now, do those folks still have a claim to special status in the Muslim world? And we've talked about the reasons for and against that claim. On the one hand, of course, the Arabic language is absolutely central to the religion of Islam and especially the Islamic empire. And we know that lineage was very important and even continues to be important today in Islam. And these are the people who had the closest lineage to the prophet. But by the same token, Islam was a universal faith, and it still is, and that everybody joining it was the same in the sight of God. So doesn't a Persian Muslim have a right to be proud of his Persian heritage as much as an Arab Muslim does? Let's face it, uh, prior to Islam, those Arab ancestors were pagans, so glorying in them is not much different than glorying in your Persian heritage. Well, that is our question today. So the movement that arose in the third century of Islam is known as Ashubiya, and it's basically been uh, defined as the assertion of pride in one's non-Arab ancestry. And it's sometimes known as Ahl al-Taswiyah, which means the people of equality. And this is referring to their assertion that all people are equal, at least ethnically, and that they should be judged based on their, their actions. And so therefore, no nationality or no ethnicity or no ancestry is better than any other. Now this is going to produce a backlash of Arab superiority that we'll talk about next week. And after that, you can decide who you think won that debate. But part of the difficulty in addressing this phenomenon is that hardly anybody actually called themselves a Sha'ubi. So it's more a case of looking at what certain people wrote and deciding whether this falls into the category or not. In fact, the vast majority of mentions of this term were by the opponents, the backlash people. And they are often referring to those who say this or certain people out there without actually naming names. So the label came to be pretty much a negative and eventually would become a very negative term. But the ideas that are represented were actually in circulation uh, to various degrees. Another challenge is that somebody could be accused of being a Sha'ubi uh, for advancing ideas that don't really sound like they're meant to assert the pride in the Persian culture. For example, you could be a government clerk of Persian origin and you write a manual about how to efficiently run an office, which a lot of people were doing, or how to do bookkeeping or something like that, and it turns out that the system that you're recommending is largely modeled on the old Persian bureaucratic system. Well, you think you're just being an efficient bureaucrat, but somebody takes offense at this and says that you're trying to impose Persian culture on us. Now, does this sound a little bit familiar? Does this sound very familiar in today's world? Well, it's a sort of similar thing. Now, we have to be careful here. It's very easy to read this whole thing through the lens of modern diversity. I mean, we always tend to read things that happened centuries ago from our current day perspective. But 8th century Baghdad was not like a 21st century liberal arts college where you know, they ban pizza because it's a cultural appropriation. So we don't have the caliph out there trying to make sure that he doesn't offend any ethnic group in his speech. That's not what's going on here. What this is really about is the people who are in power, sort of the people who decide the trends, who decide what is the correct way to do things, what is cool, you know, the style makers, deciding what direction the culture is going to go in. 
I mean, do we continue to value Bedouin poetry that glorifies the harsh life of the desert, or do we value Persian-style poetry that celebrates wine, women, and song? You know, in American society, about a century ago, it was respected to go to an elite prep school and join the crew team at an Ivy League college and belong to a country club. Well, nowadays, uh, rich people might still do that stuff, but they don't want to admit it. If you want to get anywhere, you at least want to pretend that you're a good old boy who goes out hunting in his pickup truck. And so it's a similar debate going on in the caliphate. I mean, nobody who is living in the lack of of luxury in Baghdad actually wants to go out and eat lizards and sleep on a sand dune. But do we want to continue to pretend that we do those things? So scholars have tried for years to find the Shaubiya movement as a political independence movement. And one reason is one of the most famous scholars to examine this issue and one of the first to really go in detail. Uh, was a man called Ignaz Goldheiser, a very eminent historian. But he lived in Austria-Hungary before World War I, and you could see why he would see ethnic separatism in a lot of things. It's quite understandable. Most current scholars today have concluded that this was a literary and a cultural movement rather than a political one. And these are the stakes we're talking about here. We're not talking about uh, a group of people trying to have a rebellion and declare independence. We're talking about the intellectuals and the style setters of uh, society and what they decide society is going to be about. But it still has a big impact. So probably the best way to see this is not so much as a question of who's the best ethnic group, but really a struggle over what the values of this empire are going to be. So on one side, we have largely the Persians who are going to lampoon the Bedouin for riding camels and living out in the desert. And the Arabs are going to call the Persians wimps for wearing silk and furs and living in palaces. But this is really kind of a question of what kind of culture are we going to be? Are we going to be a rough-and-tumble Bedouin culture, or are we going to be a really uh, rich and comfortable Persian-style culture? Now, there's no question that the rich, comfortable lifestyle was what the people in power actually had. But it's kind of the thing that if you looked at the United States in the 1950s or so, really the iconic figures were like John Wayne with his cowboy culture, you know, riding out on the range. That's not the way most people lived, but this was the ideal that people really liked. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Ibn Khaldun and how he described this process of nomads coming from the desert and settling in the cities, and then they would become soft, and he saw it as a natural process, and eventually they become weak, and they'd get defeated by more nomads. But here, they're kind of debating that issue. Well, uh, is, is that the way things actually work, or is living in the city and living in the life of luxury, is that actually the way we want things to be, and therefore we should model ourselves on people who did that. So in a way, this controversy we're talking about today is a different way of looking at a lot of the same issues that Caldoun was looking at. Okay, so where do we get this strange-sounding term, Ashubia. Well, this comes from the Arabic word shab, which means a people, like a national or ethnic group or the like. It doesn't just refer to, you know, a group of people standing in a train station. And shab has become a very, very politically charged term. I mean, nowadays politicians always want to talk about they're doing everything for the shab. The plural of that word is shaub, meaning peoples in the sense of ethnic groups. And when you add ia to the end of a word, it's kind of like the suffix ism. 
in English. So you put this all together uh, and you can see why this term doesn't really translate well into English. It would be like peoples-ism, which doesn't make any sense in English, but it does actually make sense in Arabic. The idea of being proud of being one of many peoples. Well, how did they get this name? Uh, it actually comes from a very important and controversial verse in the Quran, and that is the 13th verse of the 49th surah. And part of this verse says, "Jalnakum shaubin wa qabail lil ta'arifu," which translates as "We made you peoples and tribes in order to get to know each other." And you can see that word "shaubin." That's the peoples. Um, the rest of the verse goes on to say we made you male and female, and it ends up saying that the most noble among you is the most righteous. Because just like when people quote verses out of the Bible, uh, you really have to look at the whole context to see what we're talking about. Now, when you hear all of that, this sounds basically like a verse that's making everybody equal in telling them to get along. And that's certainly the way the Sharubis read it. Um, they especially read that last part that says that nobility or status is based on your actions, how righteous that you are. So that means you're, you're judged on what you do, how good a Muslim you are, uh, and not what your lineage is. And this is, by the way, how they also came to be known as Ahl al-Taswiyah, the people of equality. Well, that sounds really nice. Um, but the problem here is that if everybody is essentially created equal and equal in the eyes of God, and the Persians are largely the ones who have the education and the technical skills and who are running the infrastructure, then that kind of makes them the most powerful amongst the equals. So if you lose your privileged status as an original Arab, because of your background, and these are the folks really running things in the government, well, you're kind of losing a lot of advantage. So in that sense, the verse doesn't sound like it could be the source of controversy, but people tend to find controversy in a lot of places. So the controversy is around two words in that verse, and that's the word shaub and kaba'il, and these mean peoples, as we said, and qaba'il is the plural of qabila, which is tribes. So we made you peoples and tribes. And then it goes on to say, so, so you would get along, get to know each other. So you might think that God is just giving two synonyms for the same idea. But people look at this and say, well, if the Quran uses two different words... Um, then why didn't they just use one word? So we're going to focus on the fact that there are two words, no more, no less. It's similar to in the Bible, in the book of Ephesians, for example, it talks about the length and width and height and depth of God's love. Well, it sounds pretty straightforward, except that some analysts have keyed on the fact that four dimensions are listed there. Now, it just sounds like width and depth are pretty much the same thing, but people say, well, if God listed four spatial dimensions, then there must be four dimensions, not just the 3D that we think of, and they take off on this. So, anyway, why does God mention specifically Sha'ub and Qaba'il? Well, one interpretation of this verse is that uh, a Sha'ab is just actually a bigger unit than a tribe. Now, in English, we throw around words like tribe and clan and sub-clan pretty loosely. But in Arabic, these terms have very distinct uh, meanings. Because basically, tribes are large extended families based on blood. And so, depending on how far out you extend that family tree, you go from a family to a sub-clan to a clan. Up to several levels, you hit the tribe. Um, and that's the name that most people go by, is their tribal name, but you can keep going to what some anthropologists call a super tribe, which is a group of interrelated tribes, and this is often referred to as the Shab. And so, I mean, if you follow Arab lineages far enough, you go all the way back to Adam, and they do, actually. Uh, so this would seem to support the idea that everybody is equal. 
Well, that, however, although it seems to make sense, was not the most popular interpretation of this particular verse. The interpretation that's at the heart of the controversy is that tribes, qaba'al, refers to the Arabs, the Bedouins, who are traditionally organized by tribe. And Shaub refers to the other peoples, mostly the settled peoples, who don't go by tribes, but by who go by nations. So this would include the Egyptians and the Greeks, but it's primarily been aimed at the Persians. So even though this verse is talking about bringing everybody together, uh, people have focused on this, hey, God created two different categories of people, the tribal people and the other people. And okay, even so, it does say you're supposed to get to know each other. However, there's still a distinction between them, and this is where it comes from. So the one interpretation that kind of gets the Persians in trouble, and this is really how they get the name Shaubis, is that God mentions Shaub first. Now, if this really sounds like we're nitpicking here, uh, it, it is. Uh, because especially since the rest of the verse is all about equality, it would seem that it's erasing any distinctions based on birth. But there are some people who say, well, God mentioned the Sharubs first and then the tribes. So when you're calling someone a Sharubi, which means basically a Sharubist, you're saying you're like one of those people who are into that Sharub argument. Now, this is not the backbone of the argument that most, most Shaubis used, however, but this is one of the things they get tarred with. The argument that the people asserting the superiority of Arab culture use is that God makes a distinction between these two groups of people, and then which group is it that he sent his message to? Which group is it that still has the lineage to the prophet? Which language? Did he reveal his message in? So obviously there's a distinction in who got the most attention. And so the Shaubis that we're going to talk about today are mostly people who are reacting to that. And the counter-argument that they use is, well, the reason that God mentions these two distinct groups of people is that Arab and Middle Eastern culture in general had always been fixated on the distinction between the nomadic people and the city people. Right? It would be centuries later that Ibn Khaldun would explain all of human history based on this distinction, but he didn't come up with this out of thin air. The reason he came up with this idea is because it had been so central to the thinking up to that time. So what they would say is it could be that what God is saying here is that you people have always been divided between the desert folks and the city folks, and now it's time for it to stop. So that's sort of the argument that they're going to use. Okay, now on to specifics. One of the early Shubis was the Persian Ibn al-Muqafa, who was ascribed to the Khalif in the 700s. Uh, and he wrote extensively on proper administration and court behavior, as one would expect, because of his job. Uh, but his view was to import the classical Persian culture of the Sassanid Empire, which was the empire that ruled from about 220 BC until they were conquered by the Muslims. In that culture, the king, or the shah, as we know, was the king of kings, and he had a very elaborate class system around him, a very elaborate uh, royalty. So uh, Ibn al-Muqafa was advocating bringing a lot of this court culture into the Abbasid Caliphate, and this involved the way that servants were supposed to act, uh, the fact that you couldn't speak in the Caliph's presence unless you were called upon, and the elaborate organization of the palace, and so forth. His most famous writing on this subject was his Risala fi Asahaba. 
Now, we've seen that word sahaba before, meaning companions. Uh, and when we saw it, it referred to the companions of the prophet. But here, he's meaning all the people who are around the king or around the highest level of society and how they're supposed to act. And he advocated a very elaborate system of ceremonies and etiquette. And most of it was adopted. And this is why you see that old Baghdad looked a lot like Persian uh, architecture with the intricate palaces and the large domes. Well, Ibn al-Qafa is also famous for translating a large number of classical Persian works into Arabic. And many of these became more famous in their Arabic version and are considered uh, Arabic classics today. I mean, he, of course, was a master of the Arabic language, even though he was Persian by descent. In fact, uh, the book Kalila wa Dimna, which is a collection of wisdom tales, uh, some of which involve talking animals. Kalila and Dimna are both talking jackals. Uh, but this was a, a book of wisdom tales designed for the edification of princes and kings. Now, this is generally considered the finest medieval prose writing in Arabic, but it was actually a collection of stories from India that had been translated into Persian and then by Ibn al-Muqafa into Arabic, which he states very clearly in the book. That's what he's doing. And so on the one hand, we have this guy who is credited for advancing Arabic literature and is considered one of the greatest figures in Arabic culture, at the same time, he's also accused of being a shubi and bringing in Persian influences. And this is what I mean with a lot of these people. The same people who are accused of being shubis are also considered to be the greats of Arab culture. Uh, and this is sort of the difficulty. And that's definitely true of the next person uh, that I would mention. And this is one of the best-known Arabic poets uh, from the medieval period. And this is Abu Nuwas. And he was quite famous. Now, he was half Arab and half Persian, and he was a close companion of the Khalif, and he was known um, for loving the luxurious life of the desert, and he is most famous uh, for his wine poems, the Khamariya, and this was actually a big uh, genre of poetry in the Abbasid period. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're celebrating wine and the decadent lifestyle and, and women and uh, basically singing girls and, and so forth. But at the same time, you're celebrating a lot of Persian palace culture because this is where a lot of this stuff came from. He makes references to Persian palaces and crafts. He introduced a number of Persian words into Arabic and... Um, you, again, you're going to find scholars uh, who say that Abu Nuwas definitely wasn't a Shaubi. He was just glorifying the luxury culture in Baghdad. But then others who say, no, he was glorifying the old Persian culture. And so this is where uh, some of the difficulty arises. Now, in any case, there definitely were poets who did assert the superiority of Persian culture at the expense of uh, pre-Islamic Bedouin culture. And to kind of understand why this was going on and why it's not as serious as it sounds, one of the favored genres of poetry since pre-Islamic times was the hijjah. And the hijjah is basically insult poetry where you would make fun of people. And this was considered, you know, all good fun, sort of like battle rap today. And so people would be in insulting each other in some pretty nasty ways. So the Persian poets, those of Persian descent, they would make fun of the lifestyle of the Bedouins. And one of their favorite things they always brought up was eating lizards. Okay, and the anti shaobis this is the people who would uh, respond to them, they would always criticize the practice of incest, which was tolerated in Sassanid Persia. And so the, the great historian uh, Roy Motaheda of Harvard University, in an article about the Shaubi controversy, at one point he notes that he's read so much about Arabs eating lizards and Persians marrying their sisters that he doesn't want to read anymore. So this gives you an idea of how, um, how common it was. And so in one of the responses to the Shaubis, 
the author mentions several times that the Arabs are accused of eating bloody fur. Now, I didn't even know you could eat fur. I don't know what nutritional value it is. But apparently this was another sore point uh, that the Arabs were made fun of for. Uh, one of the notorious practices of the pre-Islamic period was female infanticide. And we know that there was a, a very large gender imbalance due to men getting killed in constant warfare. But this is the reason we had polygamy in the, in the Arab culture. And so it was a common practice to kill the female babies by burying them in the sand. And this is Basically, that, that's as much technology as they had to do that at the time. Now, Islam came along and put a stop to this killing. But here again, what's at question is not Islam, but the pre-Islamic culture of the Arabs. Uh, does an Arab Muslim have the right, or should they really be glorying in their pre-Islamic essentially pagan culture, and is that any better than the pre-Islamic Persian culture? So this is something that the Shobis would attack as well. And one of their poets, Ismail ibn Yasar, he says in a poem, After all, we raised our daughters while you buried yours alive in the ground. Okay, so this shows you how nasty uh, things could get. So one of the most prolific of the Shobi poets was Bashar ibn Burd. And again, he's a Persian origin, but he was born in Basra. He lived in Baghdad, and he's another one who's considered one of the great Arabic poets. But he also wrote boasting of his Persian heritage. And he, again, is one who was famous for the hijah, or the insult poetry. And he received a lot of it, because one thing we know about him, uh, he was blind, but he was also famous for being really ugly. And so his opponents would make fun of his ugliness, and he would come back at them, and he's the one who's viewed as the master, so that meant he came back with stuff that was even harsher than the stuff they would say about him being ugly. So you can imagine how vicious and nasty this would get. Uh, but in any case, even though uh, Bashar ibn Bard was one of the raunchiest poets of his day, he was a companion of the Khalif, uh, the Khalif al-Mahdi, who was the father of Harun al-Rashid, so uh, you know, definitely during the golden, golden age of the Caliphate. But it said that the Khalif ordered him not to write love poems because his were so explicit. So this gives you an idea of the kind of pen this guy has. So we kind of have to understand that context here in which this Persian poet is taking on his Arab competitors at what they like best. So because the Arabs were so focused on lineage, he likes to boast of his lineage. So in one of his poems, he says, Is there a messenger who will carry my message to all the Arabs to say that I am a man of lineage, lofty and above any other lineage? How many ancestors I have whose forehead wore a crown, proud in his court, to whom all knees bowed, clothed in glimmering jewels, splendidly attired in furs. Never did my father sing a camel song, trailing behind a scabby camel, nor did we roast a skunk or dig for and eat a lizard from the ground. And again, it's that eating lizard thing. So, I mean, we're wearing furs and jewels, and you're eating skunks. And he's seeing this as something bad. Well, his opponents are going to have to turn it into something good. All right. Well, the Persians may have been the primary proponents of Ashubia. But other ethnic groups also expressed similar ideas. And one place that Ashubiya appears was actually in Al-Andalus, or Muslim Spain. And the situation here is a little bit different. We're talking uh, about two centuries after the big Shubi movement in the east, in Iraq. Well, what had happened is that in 1031, the central government in Cordoba 
which also called itself a, a caliphate. We've talked about them in a previous episode. Uh, it fell. In over 30 smaller emirates appeared throughout Spain, and these would eventually be conquered by the Christians from the north until Granada was the only one left, and that was uh, conquered in 1492. Well, the leaders of these different states, these emirates, came from a lot of different backgrounds. Many were not of Arab origin. So when we're talking about the Arabs, in Spain. We're talking about those who were descended from the original conquerors who came in 711, who crossed in Gibraltar with Tarek in 711. Uh, and so they settled down and they continued to boast of their Arab origin. But there were powerful people from a lot of backgrounds. Some had come from Morocco. Uh, some were descended from populations that had already been in Spain when the Arabs arrived, like the Romans and the Goths. And some were actually Slavs, who were descended from slaves, making clear on the, that word here, who had been brought from Eastern Europe. And it's a little bit sketchy about what the history was, but these are probably slaves who came from the area around Germany or Poland and who had been brought in by the Visigoths. However, uh, by the 11th century, uh, all of these different types of people were now in charge of emirates in Muslim Spain, and of course all of them had Arabicized names and they were speaking Arabic, and so all were eager to assert their status and their worthiness despite not being of Arab background. And it's, it's difficult for us to tell how, uh, how widespread uh, this movement was because, as in the East, only a few fragments of their writings remain. But you can see the dynamics that we have. Now we have a lot of competing emirs. Some of them can still trace their roots to the Arabian Peninsula, so they're going to make the maximum lineage that they, they can out of that. They're going to really emphasize that. But others, who may actually be more powerful, want to show that, um, you know, no, we're, we're just as good as you. So one of the most famous of the uh, Andalusian Shaobis was a man named Ibn Garcia. And, of course, that name right there indicates his mixed origin. And he was actually a Basque, which is an indigenous group in northern Spain uh, that you've probably heard about. Uh, and they had inhabited that region centuries before the arrival of Islam or even Christianity. Uh, the Basques are today known for their pride, as they were um, a thousand years ago. In any case, Ibn Garcia, he actually ended up working as the chief scribe in an emirate in southern Spain called Denia. So he ended up at the other half of the country. And he was working for a guy who was not a Basque like himself. Uh, this was the emir Mujahid al-Amri who was actually of Slavic origin, one of those who had come over as slaves and risen up uh, through the military. El-Amri had broken from the central caliphate in Cordoba, which had been run by the very Arab Umayyads, and who obviously had given a very privileged place to the Arabs. And so he's looking to assert his worthiness, and he's got this great writer working for him, who is also not of Arab descent, and so he's going to produce uh, what is going to end up being the most famous surviving Shaubi manuscript of, of Spain. Uh, his most famous work this is called the Risala, which means letter, or in this case it's more like a, a treatise. And it's famous because this is really the only big surviving manuscript we have left. Now, the direct cause for him writing this Risala was that another emir of Almeria, which is another one of the breakaway states, uh, had his court poet write in praise of the emir's glorious lineage as a descendant of the Yemeni tribe, the Banu Saraj who had been part of the original Arab conquests and was obviously very proud of his superiority over the other emirs. It's kind of like if you can trace your lineage back to the Mayflower. You know, my ancestors came to America on the Mayflower. Well, that's really impressive. 
And so that's what he does. And uh, as we've said before, if you're a powerful ruler, you want to hire talented people, talented poets, to make your name famous. And this is really the only reason we ever talk about these particular two guys is because they had famous poets writing of their glory. Okay, so uh, what happens, however, is now the ball is in Ibn Garcia's court. His boss, who was very proud and actually one of the, the more powerful and successful emirs, says, okay, you got to write something for me to show that I'm just as good as this Yemeni guy over there. So Ibn Garcia writes back this risala, and this becomes famous. Now, he recycles a lot of the same ideas of the Shubis from the East. So even though he's way on the other end of the empire, for example, he's mentioning the greatness of Persian kings of the past as his examples. So this is how we know he's really copying a lot of this stuff. And this has led some scholars to sort of dismiss his ideas as not being original. Well, there wasn't really a Shaubi movement in Spain. He, he just recycled a lot of stuff from Persia. Uh, but I think if we actually look at it, we're going to see that he was quite a clever and could be quite a, a cutting and biting writer on his own. And his writing actually was fairly important. So now a big subject in this controversy, just as it was in the East, was the status of slaves. And we talked about the Mawalis in the previous episode. And the status of the Mawalis, even after they become freed, even after they become Muslim and rise to uh, positions of great power, is the idea that they were previously slaves. And as part of that slavery, they had to have a, a client relationship with some Arab family. So that shows even though you're free now, you know, your, your descendants were slaves to my descendants. So, you know, actually we are the, um, the primary culture. And this is nothing like today where you would want to be hiding the fact that your family were slave owners. They want to boast on the fact that, you know, hey, we used to own your, your descendants. So slavery is a very key point in this status relationship here. Now, Ibn Garcia is going to use this against the Arabs. So he's going to trace it all the way back. And he, and he's not the only one to do this, uh, he uses the argument that the Arabs are the descendants of Hagar, who was Abraham's slave, rather than Abraham's actual wife, Sarah. This is, of course, the story from the Bible in Genesis. And we know that Ishmael, who was the, the son of Abraham and Hagar, becomes the, um, the ancestor of the Arabs. So even in one of his poems, he says, Your mother, O Arabs, was a slave to our mother. If you deny this, you will be found unjust. We never tended monkeys nor did we weave mantles, nor did we eat wild herbs. There is no cutting off your relationship with Hagar. You were our slaves, servants, enfranchised ones, and valets. Okay, now, who's the our we're talking about? Because as we said, he's a, he's a Basque, and his boss is a, is a Slav. So Ibn Garcia is resting on the all-important concept of lineage again. So he can say that um, definitely you, you Arabs have the lineage to Hagar. Well, everybody else has the a lineage to Sarah. And so therefore, um, you know, we are all descended from the, the free wife. Now, he goes even further and he calls out these Yemenis in particular who are so proud of their lineage, he says that they were clients of the Byzantines in the pre-Islamic period. And, and this was true. Uh, at one point, the Byzantine Empire had a, a relationship with them, used them as a client stage um, to you know, sort of keep the, the Arab Bedouin in line. So here you are, you were, you were mercenaries for the Byzantine Empire, which of course is the big enemy of the time. Now, he links his own lineage to the Roman Empire, and then going back before that, says they're all uh, descended from the Persians. 
Now, this is a uh, pretty flimsy lineage that he's using. I mean, they didn't have Ancestry.com there. But he specifically mentions their blonde hair as uh, proof. The interesting thing, though, is of all the people who write back against him, and a lot of people do, they don't seem to question this assertion saying, who, who are you kidding? You're not, you're not descended from any Persians. This is not something they attack. So they seem to have accepted it, although it's, I mean, basically we know it can't be true. Okay, then he goes on to the very familiar attacks on Arab culture, you know, mocking the way that they live. But he, he goes even further with this. And so he attacks the classic form of Arabic Bedouin poetry, which is the Qasida. And this is something, uh, if you study Arabic poetry, this is like the, the creme de la creme. This is the, the great form of poem. Well, Qasida glorifies desert life. I mean, that's the whole meaning of this. It's about a journey through the desert. Now, what he does is he says that most of these so-called Arabs who have been in Spain for centuries wouldn't know the desert if it came up and hit them. So the typical Qasida, for example, begins with a section called the Atlal, which is where the poet surveys an abandoned campsite. And this, call, this calls to mind all sorts of memories of the past. Now this sounds a little bit strange, but most of these poems start with someone coming up on this old, you know, abandoned campsite in the desert. Well, the idea, of course, is that the Bedouin move from place to place. And so if you went back to some place you had once lived a couple of years ago, that's what you would find. This would be like going back to your hometown, except it would be gone. And so this would bring up a lot of memories. It would remind you of a romance you had, or a battle that you were in, or a family member that you lost. And then you could go on to glorify the glory of your tribe, and so forth and so on. So you can see for desert... Um, dwellers, for Bedouins, this would be a great image to start your, your poetry off. But what Ibn Garcia is saying is that you Andalusian Arabs have never seen a desert campsite in your life, okay? I mean, it's uh, like someone who spent their entire life in New York City trying to pretend they're a cowboy or something, or even worse. Okay, so how widespread a Shobia actually was in El Andalus is very hard to tell because Ibn Garcia's is really the only fragment that we have left. And there is debate amongst the scholars, and I don't want to um, jump in on that, but uh, for example, Patricia Crone, who is one of the most eminent historians of the Middle East um, ever, a very respected name, uh, she claims that there really was no Shobia in Spain, and that Ibn Garcia was sort of like a, an aberration. He was like a lone figure. But what we do know is that Ibn Garcia's Risala produced a lot of response. In fact, the, um, the historian James Monroe, in his book, analyzes five of the rebuttals to Ibn Garcia. And this is what we have uh, throughout when we're talking about Ashubia. We have a lot more surviving writings from the opponents of the Shubis. In fact, we know what some of the Shubis said only from reading what their opponents said about them. But this definitely shows that his writing must have been taken fairly seriously for all of these scholars to write some pretty serious rebukes to him. Why would you refute something that, that isn't significant? Okay, at the same time, however, in addition to this, um, this type of shubia, uh, there was another type appearing in Spain, and that was among the Jewish community. Now, as we have said many times on this program, the Jews were important members of Muslim society, particularly in Spain, uh, and they were certainly treated much better there than they were in Christian Europe, and they were especially well represented amongst the scholars of the period, some of the greatest scholars um, in, in Judaism uh, of any time uh, came from Muslim Spain. And many of these were uh, experts in Arabic. They wrote in Arabic and they were masters of the Arabic language. But there was a backlash about the same time amongst uh, Jewish scholars by some claiming that Hebrew had been neglected and needed to have a renaissance. 
And so there was the idea of writing in Arabic uh, was sort of demeaning the Hebrew heritage and causing us to lose the Hebrew heritage. Judah al-Harizi, who was one of these who lamented the sad state of Hebrew at the time, said, They have enslaved the tongue of the Israelites to the tongue of Keda, which is referring to Arabic. And they said, Come, let us sell her to the Ishmaelites. All of them spurned the Hebrew tongue and made love to the tongue of Hagar. They embraced the bosom of an alien. Okay, so that's pretty hard stuff here. Um, basically, these people sold out. In, he's in, uh, accusing them of doing it intentionally. Let's sell. Let's sell the language of the Israelites to the Ishmaelites, which, of course, is a harsh term for the Arabs by this point. I mean, Ishmaelites mean the son of Ishmael, uh, who is the son of Hagar, who was the maid, the slave. And again, he's bringing up this Hagar dimension. Wow, all of them spurned the Hebrew tongue, meaning that he wants them to go back to it. Well, the difference, of course, in this type of uh, shubia, and it's actually called uh, Ibraniya because Ibriya is the uh, Arabic word for Hebrew, is that these writers were not Muslims. Uh, they were still Jews, and they were not writing in Arabic. Um, they were writing these things in Hebrew, so probably they would not have been read by the Arabs. But even, even in this, that Sarah versus Hagar dynamic is a prominent theme. And in this case, uh, this guy really is descended from the sons of Sarah. Um, he, he's not just like um, Ibn Garcia claiming that. Well, as you may have guessed by the fact that very little of the Sha'ubi writing actually survives and so much of their opponents does, the Sha'ubis end up losing this argument. Again, I said we're, we're not in 21st century uh, culture here. And so we're going to look in our next episode about why that is. Um, but after that happens, the term Sha'ubi would go on to become a bad word. And it's sort of the idea of someone who is a separatist and who is disloyal. And it's particularly aimed, again, at Persians. Saddam Hussein, for example, used this term against the Shia of Iraq, who were, and they still are, a majority in Iraq, but one that he suppressed very brutally. And we know that Saddam always had this concern that the Shia of Iraq would ally with Iran. As it turns out, during the war, they actually didn't. But he used this as a term to discredit anyone uh, who would take the side of Iran over the Arab countries. But the fact that he could use this term Sha'ubi and people would know that it was being used as an insult and as a warning shows how negative it had become. Well, join us next time and we're going to discuss the response to the Sha'ubis and in particular the famous work that sums up the dominant attitude of the time and that is a book that was called The Excellence of the Arabs. And so we will finish this series on the ethnicity in the golden age of Islam. So please join us then. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you again for those ratings and comments. That's what enables us to keep this program on the air without advertisements and without cost. So we really appreciate those. Shukran jazilan. Wa ma salama.